Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. When it comes to the National Football League, the name Leo Lyons, not familiar to many fans of the game at all. But it should be. In fact, an argument can be made that the NFL was his brainchild. That Leo's dream and persistence is the reason why there is an NFL today. And next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to take a look back at the life and career of the man who just might be responsible for the league's founding, Leo Lyons. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. You know, as the National Football League continues its 100-year celebration, the one man who might not be getting the type of recognition he deserves is the one man whose dream just might have been the catalyst to get this whole thing going, Leo Lyons. Leo is a very unfamiliar name to many football experts and fans. You see, Leo had a dream when he was 16 years old, and that was to start a professional football league. That was way back in 1908 when the only true professional sports league was Major League Baseball. And at that time, baseball was split into two leagues. There were no divisions, and there were just 16 teams, eight in the National League and eight in the American League. Leo thought there should be a professional football league, too. He talked to people about it, and they all thought he was crazy. But Leo was determined and scribbled his thoughts down in journals, sought financial backing, and worked tirelessly to make his dream come true. Even when the big corporations turned their back on him, even when the newspapers ran articles about Leo's crazy dream and said professional football would never be more than a dream, he never gave up. And when Leo turned 29, after making contact and befriending the great Jim Thorpe, he was invited to a meeting of the minds. And while it wasn't everything he had hoped it would be, that September 17th meeting in 1920 culminated with Leo's dream becoming a reality. The American Professional Football Association was formed. Two years later, it was renamed the National Football League. So, 
Why wasn't it everything he had hoped for, and why is Leo Lyons not better remembered? John Steffenhagen, Leo's great-grandson, a member of the Professional Football Researchers Association and who is in the middle of writing a new book called A Journey from the Sandlots to the National Football League, which looks back on the life and career of Leo, is here to talk about his great-grandfather, the advent of professional football, and one of the league's first teams, the Rochester Jeffersons. Before we start, however, just a few notes. Please follow us on Twitter. Look us up at Sports F Heroes. We make posts on a daily basis, and we'd love to have you on board. Look for Sports Forgotten Heroes on Instagram. Check out our page on Facebook, or check us out online at sportsfh.com. It's really a detailed site that has more info on the forgotten heroes we talk about stats, and stories. And it's where you can make contact with us as well. Just click on Contact Us and send us your thoughts, comments, make suggestions. Let us know how we're doing. As always, especially if you listen on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a five-star rating. And as always, thanks for your support. So let's get back to Leo Lyons. Leo was born at the turn of the century, 1892, and just around 1908, his dream of a professional football league started to consume his life. Almost everything he did, he did for the sole purpose of creating that league. And he put together a three-step plan, which is just one of the things we'll talk about with our guest today, John Steffenhagen. Hey, John, welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. So glad you could join us. Thank you. I'm happy to be here and, and to tell a quite an incredible story about my great-grandfather. Yeah, no doubt. And let's start right there. I guess first, tell us of your remembrances of your great-grandfather. Well, back in the mid-70s when I was eight or nine years old, I would be over at his house uh, in Pittsford, New York, and my mom would take me and my sister over there, and and we would go, and we you know we'd be playing different things around the house while my mom visited, and while I was there, I knew Leo, my great-grandfather, was involved in football, but at eight and nine, I didn't really realize, you know, how big he was at that time. So I would be there, you know, playing with my Hot Wheel cars, hmm. and, and there'd be some older gentlemen there. And and then later on, my mom would tell me, you know, you do realize that that was like Art Rooney of the Pittsburgh Steelers that was visiting, <laughs> <laughs> or, or George Hallis of the Chicago Bears. And, and, you know, as I got older, I'm like, wait, did you – did I – go back to my mom and say, did you tell me that that was George Hallis, the George Hallis? <laughs> <laughs> so, wow. yeah, it was, uh, again, I, I wish I was older at that time. I would have, you know, been in awe, but at that time it was like, okay, yeah, they're just a bunch of football guys, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah. And then, you know, his downstairs, 
was like a mini hall of fame. Um, it was, there must've been thousands and thousands of photographs and memorabilia mm -hmm. in his downstairs. And he would show me, you know, a lot of that memorabilia and I still remember it. And, and now I have quite a bit of it, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. whatever didn't end up in Canton. Sure. How proud was he of his football past? He was extremely proud, but uh, at the time that I, had, I I knew him and was, you know, interacting with him, he was in his late 70s, 80s. And at that time, he was a pretty much a, a bitter old man. And that's how hmm. my mom described it is because no one really knew who he was. And I think it bothered him that even, you know, people in Rochester, nobody knew his life story. Mm -hmm. And. And it, now that I've gone back through his journals and and seen, you know, what he did and where he was throughout football history, it's I would have been bitter myself if no if no one knew who I was. Mm, sure. You know? So. So, yeah, it was he was definitely a proud, proud guy of what he had accomplished. Well, I got to tell you, John, until you reached out to me, I knew of the name but I knew so little about Leo Lyons and his place in the history of the National Football League. And I think it's really a shame that more people don't know about Leo. And I certainly hope today's podcast sheds some light on who Leo was and how important a figure he was in the creation of the National Football League. I mean, it's astonishing that his name is not mentioned more. Yeah, actually. Yeah. It, there, it, 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 as far as Rochester, New York is his hometown. Nobody, you know, over the past few years, I've done news stories and, and things like that. Nobody were like Leo who, and you know, even the, the County historian, I go, are you aware that NFL games were played here in Rochester? And she's like, no, they didn't believe me. I literally had to go and show them the newspapers from the 20s and said, uh, yes, the NFL played here. Rochester had an NFL team. I mean, it's like nobody knows. It's like this big mystery. Right. And, 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 and we'll get into that uh, later on because it's really interesting you say that because – from what you have written and, and from the research I've done, when Rochester had a team, so few people accepted it. And I, that really puzzles me. But um, be, be, before we get there, though, when talking about the game, I'm really interested in this. And, and I get it. He passed away when you were only nine years old. But what stands out to you most, if there is anything you can remember about Leo talking about the game? He definitely, you know, he would tell me the stories. I can remember, I actually have, my mom always thinks it's so ironic that when I was a baby, I would be over there and he would be showing me this shiny football trophy, <laughs> which I have now. And it's on display <laughs> in Rochester at a museum. Um, it was the New York State 1915 trophy or 1916 trophy, which ended up leading to him meeting Jim Thorpe mm -hmm. and becoming part of the NFL. But that trophy, he would show me it and, and, and always tell me stories about that trophy. 
And again, I would be like, oh, okay, yeah, you know, it's like you're older, but but he was always proud of that trophy. That that was like the one thing he had in his living room. I mean, everything else would be downstairs, but he always had that on his on his TV or on a shelf in the living room, that trophy. And, and now I have it today, and it's it's kind of ironic. Oh, wow, that's pretty <laughs> cool. Years later, yeah, it shows up here. Yeah. Hey, why did you take it? And I I know what the answer is here, but why did you take it upon yourself to write the book, A Journey from the Sandlots to the National Football League? Well, to be honest, I mean, I had once he passed away in 76, um, the Hall of Fame and Joe Horrigan came to Pittsburgh, New York. They were there with a a huge truck to pack my great grandmother had given them everything for free, which there was probably a million dollars worth of merchandise in there. I mean, things from a hundred years from the first NFL games. So before they got there, my mom and aunts and uncles ran over there with boxes and, and grabbed as much as they could Hmm. and put it in their car. So that's what I have today, including a game ball from 1921. Wow. Roger Jefferson's Chicago Bears, the first game at Wrigley Field. Um, again, more history. But, but yeah, um, amazing how um, these things had, had been there and I have now. So, uh, again, back when I, my mom had given me these boxes, they've basically stayed in my closet as I grew up kind of, again, never really realizing what Leo was involved in in football. Mm. I knew he had a team. I figured it wasn't, it couldn't have been an NFL team. I've never heard of the Rochester Jefferson. I'm like, it must've been a semi-pro team. So then as I get older and then you had the internet, you know, you could Google things. So one day me and my mother had sat down and we're like, well, let's Google Leo Lyons and, and see what comes up. And we were just astonished. And it was like, wait, what? One of the founders of the league, uh, he was there that day. They created it in Canton. Um, I'm like, I was just absolutely blown away. Mm. So over these years, more and more of the relatives have given me things of his, including just recently a journal from Leo, which one of my uncles who had passed away was holding on to it. He never told me about it for whatever reason. I guess it was his one thing he wanted to hold on to because he knew I want it, would want it. But uh, I have that journal now and, and it details, you know, the, the struggles that he went through. So after I've been going through, I must have boxes and boxes of his notes and things and I was just like, oh, my God, this is a, a pretty incredible story. It's, it's almost like I'm, I'm reading a movie. It's like mm-hmm. this is this kid, you know, a young kid. And what he accomplished was pretty amazing. Sure, sure. You know, I've been to Canton. I've been to Cooperstown. I've been to Springfield. I've seen the National Hockey League Hall of Fame. And, and I got to say that very few, you know, very few halls approach what they have in Cooperstown. That place is just absolutely amazing. And oh, I always sure. thought I always thought that Canton should rival that. And you know, Canton's got a lot, but I got to I got to admit, right now as we're talking, I'm trying to think and I 
Is there much there about Leo Lyons? Shouldn't there uh, be a an exhibit with half the stuff you're talking about be dedicated <laughs> to Leo Lyons? I mean, that's football history. Well, if you want to know the truth, well, just last month I met with um, David Baker, the president president of the Pro Football Hall of Fame, and we met in his office, and I, and I told him, I'm like, you know, I come here, and actually the name Leo Lyons is nowhere in the Hall of Fame itself. Nowhere. I, I, I'm telling you, I've been there, and, I, <laughs> and I'm racking my head right now thinking, I don't recall anything. One little section, you know, it mentions the the forming of the league. It mentions the team names. You know, Rochester Jefferson's was there, but it says, you know, it's something like George Hallis, Jim Thorpe, and 10 other men representing <laughs> Rochester. You know, it's like those guys don't matter. It's only the big names. And, and that, but it just, it's, but it, I had been there 10 years ago and I had saw that and it just, it's bothered me ever since. And then, upon learning all this new information that is just mind boggling. I'm like, that's just not right. You no, know, it's not. So I do say that they just, uh, for the hundredth anniversary next year, there is in the works right now, the called the creators, uh, or no, the founders exhibit, mm -hmm. which supposedly is going to be a huge exhibit there permanently, uh, featuring the original members of the NFL and the original, you know, co-founders of the league, mm -hmm. which it took, you know, 50, 60 years to do it, but um, it looks like it's going to be done. And I'm really excited about that. Definitely. Uh, I guess this coming June, that would be June, 2020 when the professional football researchers association has their, uh, you know, their every other year meeting and it's going to be out of Canton. Hopefully we could see it then. Yeah, that I'm actually one of the four guest uh, panelists that are going to be there, um, along with the book, the Jeffrey Miller of Buffalo, and a couple other guys. Um, so yeah, I'll be on a panel discussion panel about the the creation of the league. So cool. I'll be able to speak more of the Rochester Jeffersons. That's awesome. Hey, you wrote you wrote that Leo started dreaming of a professional football league, just like there was professional baseball, when he was about 16 years old. And yep. he turned that dream into a reality by the time he was 29. Talk yep. about his determination and why he thought his dream would work. Yeah, that is just astounding when I, I learned all that. Um, yeah, he joined the Rochester Jeffersons, who had been around since 1898, as a, just a Sandlot team of just amateur kids playing in the neighborhood. Uh, Leo joined that team at 16, and he just fell in love with this team. I mean, they had no set uniforms, uh, no, you know, every, every, every year they had a different coach, manager, and he just became obsessed with this team. He never played uh, football at school. He attended a Catholic school, which didn't have a football program. So he would play around the neighborhoods and had actually at 13 had become well known for uh, his aggressive play. He would actually play games. They said he he would wear the the cleats off his shoes because they were 
they were beat up shoes. He'd be playing his socks. Hmm. He'd say he'd be in his socks playing this games. So it was in 1908 when he was 16, he joined the, the Rochester Jeffersons. And that season he was obsessed with starting a pro league. His family were like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and he's like, well, it, it made no sense to him why there was major league baseball and it was popular and there were fans and, you know, it was talked about, it was in the newspaper. Why, why is football not the same? There's colleges, but why not a pro league? So he got it in his head that he wanted to turn this Rochester Jefferson team, who was just a bunch of Sandlot amateur kids into a professional football league team. Mm-hmm. And he wrote it down on paper at 16 and he devised a plan and he, he stuck to it. <laughs> wow. What was, what was the biggest hurdle or the biggest hurdles he had to overcome? Money. It was always money, um, money and support. He, he grew up here in Rochester where Kodak was Eastman Kodak was, you know, one of the biggest companies in the country and George Eastman was right here. And he would always be writing to him. And later on when he had the NFL team, he actually met him and said, places like green Bay, Chicago, this is taking off. We really need financial support. And at that time, he was just laughed at because professional football was considered just a folly, just a – it was never going to work. So he could never drum up financial support hmm. for the team. Hmm. Um, what was what was the landscape of football like before Leo and company officially formed the NFL? I mean – I think I read that there was an NFL that tried to launch years earlier, but there were semi-professional teams and or semi-professional leagues in places like Ohio. What was the landscape for football like around that time? It was definitely, you know, your mid-1900s. Ohio was like the hotbed of football for the whole country. Um, you had teams here and there in every state, but nothing, nothing is organized as well as in Ohio. And that's became the Ohio League in 1903, where you had the Canton Bulldogs, the Maslin Tigers. Mm-hmm. Um, they were the most coordinated of the of the leagues. In 1902, there was a, the first NFL which was made up of only three teams in the league <laughs> made up of uh, baseball professionals, mm-hmm. but that it only lasted a year and that that folded of course. But um, at the time it, uh, college football was king. High school football was popular, but the professional game, for whatever reason, the majority of people felt that it was, it was never going to work. Mm-hmm for whatever reason, but Leo never saw that. He's like, I don't see why there are a reason and why there isn't a professional football league. Sure. You know, the game, as one would expect, was quite different back then. In fact, I've done previous podcasts about guys like Benny Friedman, who's a Hall of Famer, mm-hmm. and and the legendary John Heisman. And one yep. thing that was discussed on both episodes of Sports Forgotten Heroes was just how dangerous the game was. In fact, President, I think it was Theodore Roosevelt, stepped in because of how dangerous the game was. 
Would you explain just how violent football was and what President Roosevelt and others did to curb the violence? Right, yeah. Well, it didn't work very well to curb. But, uh, yeah, in 1905, uh, Theodore Roosevelt called a meeting at the White House with athletic directors from Harvard and Yale and some of the other biggest colleges to discuss the fact that just the football was so violent that there was literally a death toll in the newspapers. Even here in Rochester, there would be a death toll from the high schools. When wow. the kids were literally literally being killed either by, you know, they land on the, their face on the field and then they just get stomped on accidentally or purposely. Um, yeah, there were 45 deaths, I believe, in the U.S. in 1906. Wow. Yeah. And uh, again, there was there was rarely passing. It was mostly just a very. The, the flying wedge, which was, you know, a popular thing where they would just kind of line up and just try to bowl people over and you would get pretty much stomped on. Mm-hmm. But uh, the, the big thing was uh, uh, severe lacerations and spinal separations. Those were the two. <laughs> the spinal two separations. Those spinal separation sounds awfully painful. Right. I mean, I guess it led to death because that that was the listing of the death, even severe lacerations where, you know, I guess they would, you know, be literally cut wide open on the field. And of course, you know, medical attention back then was nothing like it is now. Sure. So, yeah, yeah. So it was definitely a rough. So that's why really no one really thought of it as a professional game because it just wasn't professional. It was thought of as a rugged, you know, rough and tumble game. Yeah, I wonder if that's if that is truly the one or the main reason why the game didn't become a professional game until Leo and company got together and and created, you know, the professional league. You know, um the game was so violent that Leo's parents forbid him to play. And that's when he met, and I'd like for you to talk a little bit about this, another significant figure when it comes to sports history, and that's Walter Hagen. Walter Hagen, uh, yeah, he grew up with Walter, who ended up becoming, you know, a golf legend, winning countless U.S. Opens. And five PGA Uh, championships. Yeah, and I don't know how many world championships, but yeah, he was, uh, the two of them grew up together as uh, 14-year-olds. Their father worked at the train yards building refrigerated train cars together. So the two of them would hang out together. Their fathers had brought them to work to, to try to get them to learn the skills. However, both of them were so obsessed with football and golf respectfully <laughs> that the two of them would always just end up outside mm-hmm. um, playing golf. And they had struck up a friendship ever since then. And uh, Walter Hagen ended up actually being the one who came up with the Rochester Jefferson uniforms, um, the design, uh, because he was a big fashion kid. He mm-hmm. later on would become known as for, for being flamboyant. Sure. He dressed really well on the golf course. <laughs> yeah. So uh, at that time, 
Uh, Leo wanted to change the Rochester landscape because, you know, the kids just wear their just shirts or whatever. He's like, why don't we give it a more professional look? So uh, he worked with Walter and they designed a logo. Uh, Leo wanted to have a darker color and Walter Hagen's like, no, go with bright red. You got to stand out. So, yeah, the two of them designed the Rochester Jefferson jersey together. But, uh, yeah, they uh, had become good friends early on. Later on in life, not so much. Um, once Walter became a millionaire, uh, the two kind of didn't see eye to eye on a lot mm. of things. It mm. separated. And did Walter play the game or did he just watch? The football? Yes. No, he never played the football games because uh, they would always be – seeing each other during the the winter months because Walter wasn't playing and Walter would always want to hang out with Leo. So Walter would end up keeping score of the game and, and Leo's teammates would always be like, what's the matter with your friend? Is he a sissy? He doesn't want to play football. (laughs) And uh, Walter's like, no, I I don't want to get hurt, which was a good idea. You know, back then it was so rough that they didn't end up with broken bones and arms and legs that uh, he tried to stay out of the professional or stay out of the football games Mm -hmm. to save himself for golf. Hey, let me ask you, Rochester Jeffersons, where does the name Jeffersons come from? That came from the street, Jefferson Avenue. Uh, Back then, a lot of the streets in the neighborhood would be named, they would name the teams after those streets. So Mm -hmm. there was the, the Oxfords, the, Atlantics, they would just be named after the streets in the neighborhood. Okay. So so while Leo's parents forbid him to play, he didn't exactly listen. And at the age of 16, he was playing for the Rochester Jeffersons. Tell us about those early years. It was not exactly as organized as one would think, in fact, as you said, Leo referred to his early days with the Jeffersons as unorganized chaos. <laughs> yeah, he uh, when he first joined the team, it was just a very rough and tumble team. And, and during his first year, you know, he would it would bother him that it wasn't more organized. And, uh, you know, during games, like some of the coaches would get mad and just walk away and leave the game, go home and, and just nothing, nothing organized whatsoever. So during his first year, he actually had to use an alias uh, because he was worried that his parents would find out through the neighborhood kids <laughs> that he was playing. So he would meet these other kids and tell them, you know, I'm John Smith or whatever name. <laughs> he would have to go by a different name. Um, and then right away, he started like started trying to make rules, trying to help out the coach. Um, just right then he knew that, you know, again, he, he had this plan. So he wanted to, uh, the Rochester Jeffersons to become the best in the city. That was his step one of three on his way up the ladder to professional football. Mm-hmm. So yeah, his first year he was already um, working and, and, and trying to better the team. So you said three steps step. That was step one. What were steps two and three? Step two was uh, step one was best in Rochester. Step two would be best in the state. And then three, become a professional football team. Okay. 
And so he, big he, steps. He, and he accomplished all three. So back to the Jeffersons, who did they play and how were the games arranged? Where did they play? What about practice? Tell us, tell us about that. <laughs> yeah, definitely a lot different than it is today. Um, I, I didn't know it until I started going through the newspapers and researching all this, that teams back in, you know, when he joined the team in 1908, uh, you didn't have a telephone, you didn't have the internet, you didn't have television, you had none of those. So what you would do was your new, the newspaper was your main outlet. So team, team managers would advertise in the sports section and say, the Rochester Jeffersons are looking for opponent for next Sunday. Please write to me or come to my house at, you know, one, two, three North <laughs> Avenue. <laughs> I couldn't even how, imagine. Yeah. That's how games were booked. I mean, it was just so, you know, bizarre how it would be. <laughs> and there it was, I, I would find it every week. There's Leo Lyons. Um, Within the first year, he was already there was already signs that he was already taking over as manager of the team at 16 years old. And by the way, I forgot Leo was a multitasker. He never did just one thing. So while he was 16 years old and joined the Rochester Jeffersons, he had already at his school been was the basketball and baseball manager. Wow. <laughs> of the programs and a player within those two teams as well hmm. at 16. He was actually managing kids that were older than him, but uh, yeah, the, the players would unanimously vote him in because he was so popular and, and such a good manager. Hmm. So did so. they, did, did they hold practices and, and did they have set plays? How did all that work? No, it was pretty loose. It was pretty loose. It was uh, practices maybe a couple times during the week for maybe like an hour or two. Um, and then, you know, yeah, it was plays would be pretty simple, simplistic, not like anything like today. Draw them up in the dirt like we used to play on the uh, yeah. lots. Yep. You yep. go here, you go there and make a left Yeah, especially – yeah, especially in football because you know the passing game was was rare. It, it wasn't. Yeah, I guess uh, so. Yeah. Again, too, the foot. That was another thing I thought was funny. The football was shaped like a watermelon back in the early 1900s. That's right. And the passing the passing game was extremely difficult because of that. I've got in my journal. Leo would say, "Why doesn't someone make a slimmer football?" <laughs> it's <laughs> well, like that's really interesting. He had the foresight. Right. Right. It's like to him, it was like, you know, he's looking at it. He's like, why are we trying to throw this big thing you can't even grip? Wow. It's that's like, really interesting. <laughs> you know, again, at 16 years old, he's, he's writing these things down in his book, you know, and again, and it wouldn't make sense. Right. I mean, if you were a kid back then, you, you can't throw the thing because it's so big. It's like, why doesn't someone make one easier to throw? Sure. And that's where, that's where Benny Friedman came in. And I mean, that guy was able to throw that ball better than anybody else. And ultimately yeah. that's why he became a hall of famer. Hey, where did Leo's love for sports come from? And how much did that love for sports take over his life? Well, I would say it's pretty, it's hard to believe that he was such a sports fan 
his family, his father, they were not into sports. And so he basically just kind of on his own became like a, a fan of the sports he was doing, you know, in basketball, baseball, and the football. Um, nobody really influenced him. He just, he just kind of did it on his own. A love of it. Hmm, interesting. What was yeah. home life like for Leo? Uh, not good. Uh, his father, he had, um, eight brothers and sisters he had. So, uh, it was tough. His father would be working two jobs. He was a heavy drinker. So Leo would, uh, at 16, at that time you graduated high school at 16 at the school he was at anyway. So he was already working two jobs at 16 as well as managing the baseball, basketball, and football teams. Hmm. Uh, and he was happy to not be at home. He was he was happy to be, you know, married to the the his sports that he loved. Right. You wrote that, um, you know, he really did find solace in work in the fields. I mean, he set up the fields. He printed the tickets. He was, as you wrote, a walking franchise. <laughs> Can yeah. you talk a little more about that? A walking franchise? Yeah. Well, you got look for the within the next two years from when he was 16 when he joined, by in two years, as, as he turned 18 in 1910, he took over as manager, coach, and owner of the team. Wow. He, uh, he was everything. The team was just gonna disband. He didn't actually buy it from anybody. Um, the men that were running the team loosely had given, had basically given up by 1910 and weren't going to do anything with the team. And so he took over as the team owner. So here he is at 18 doing that. Um, and then I just forgot the question you asked me, <laughs> uh, you know, um, that he was a walking franchise. What did that mean? And you're sort of explaining that, that he did basically, he was the franchise. Yeah, by 18, he pretty much already now, he's got, you know, two years had passed now, and he wants to be the best in Rochester. So he knows he has to make drastic changes to the team. But but again, along the way here, he's got no support, even from his teammates. They know they just want to play football. They don't want to be owners or, you know, do any work other than play football. So he would, that morning get up, go out and label or mark the field with either paint or, or marking it with uh, wood. He'd build the goalposts. He built the benches, set the benches up. Wow. And actually in early years, Walter Hagen would be the only one that he knew that had a vehicle, a Model T truck, because <laughs> <laughs> they had a little bit of more money than him. So those two would actually set up the fields uh, in 1910. Uh, and at that time, uh, the newspaper had noticed what Leo was doing, and they're the ones who came up with the phrase, the walking franchise, because he was already turning heads here in Rochester as being kind of like this unusual football crazy guy. Hmm. He really, truly had a love for this game. Obsession. <laughs> it was <laughs> It was a true love and obsession for sure, no doubt. You know, you wrote about something else that I find really interesting. And, you know, 
at that time in our country's history, there was still evidence in one way, shape, or form of the Civil War. And Civil War veterans were still very much a part of the fabric of our society. So mm-hmm. talk about that. How, how did you weave that into your book? As far as the the Civil War, they had the last, um, their last march. They were, by the early 1900s, they had all, you know, it had been 40 years. So those guys were approaching their 70s and 80s. And every year around the country, the Civil War vets would march in different cities for parades. So the the year, I can't remember, it was somewhere around that time when Leo was um, 18, um, the Civil War veterans had their final march in the United States, and that would that took place in Rochester. So President Taft was here. And uh, Leo ended up going down with his friends to watch the uh, the Civil War march uh, in downtown town. So yeah, he's a witness to that history. He's again, he, I consider him like a Forrest Gump. He's always he's always <laughs> around all this historical stuff. So cool. Yeah, and then and then he ended up uh, his his friend. A teammate of his had a his mother and grandmother were on a train, and the Civil War veterans were on their way. A lot of them to Pennsylvania, and as they had left Rochester, there was a train accident, and it had gone over a bridge and into the water. Oof! And the train, the cars at that time were just made of old wood, so literally they just disintegrated when they fell off the bridge. So Leo went with his friend to see if they could find their mother and grandmother. Oh. So he was a witness to this horrible, horrific train accident uh, nearby. So, so, yeah, that ended up killing a lot of Civil War veterans as well. Mm. It's like they had survived all that, and then a stupid train accident takes them out. Isn't that the way? Right. Hey, as for football, you know, one of the other things that struck me was Leo didn't care who suited up for his Jeffersons as long as they could play. And one of his first recruits was Henry McDonald, and he was one of football's first African-American players. Can you talk at all about Henry and the (laughs) friendship, perhaps, that he and Leo formed? I love this story. This is one of the things he mentions in his journal a lot, which as I was reading it, I look, I felt like I was watching a movie. Um, Henry McDonald was one of the first black graduates here in Rochester. And he started to play He played football in high school for East high. And then he played a, a couple of games for a team called the Oxfords. Now, the Oxfords played two games against the Rochester Jeffersons in 1911. So now Leo is 19 years old and running the Jeffersons. Uh, During the game, Leo notices Henry, who is a star player, being treated very harshly and uh, very race, a lot of racism. Um, During the game, Henry ran a 90 yard touchdown 
against the Jeffersons and he crossed the goal line and Leo sees all the players on the team high-fiving each other and Henry walks back to the sideline by himself and nobody congratulating him, no acknowledgement. Wow. (laughs) And that had bothered him. He wrote in his journal that that really, really bothered him. And, And at this time, there weren't a lot of blacks in the North after the civil war, it took a while for them to, to migrate up North. So there were not a lot of blacks in Rochester at the time. So Leo didn't think anything of it. It's just the color of a skin. And he was really bothered by it. So in the next matchup, same thing happens again, including some of the, his own players were calling him, you know, black boy, we're like just like belittling him, and he mm. couldn't believe it. He's like, he's your star player, and you're belittling him. So after the game, um, the team left, and there was Henry sitting on the bench, getting ready to go home. So Leo walked over to him and sat down on the bench next to him, and said, "You know, I I see what's happening here, and." And at that time, Henry's like, I don't think anything of it. It's it's fine. It's fine. He's like, I don't think you should be being treated that way. So he offered Henry a spot on the Rochester Jeffersons and said that he would never be treated differently. And and that became a lifelong friendship until they both passed away in the 70s. <laughs> wow, that's 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 a really <laughs> cool story. And and shows what kind of person Leo was. Yeah. So all yep. yeah, and all through this, Leo's dream of a professional football league, which is what our topic is about today, the creation of the National Football League, the founding of it, and and Leo's role in that founding. So all along, all through this, this this dream is burning him up. He sees mm-hmm. a future, tells people that it's coming, but so many didn't think a professional football league would ever come about. There was so much going on. Major League Baseball was the national pastime. World War I was ratcheting up. The smallpox epidemic, it was a real thing. Talk about all that and and. And all this that Leo had to navigate to keep his dream alive. <laughs> well, yeah. So let's see. So now we're in. We're talking about like 1915 now. Well, let's see. Let's see. We left at 1910. He was 18. 1911. He had Henry McDonald. He was 19. So now by 1914, 1915 is Leo's in early 20s. Um, He's got the he's got the team uniforms. He starts to pay the players out of his pocket, which turns the Sandlotters officially into semi-pro football team, which was big here in Rochester because it hadn't happened before. So now the Rochester Jeffersons are a semi-professional football team. He's building this team, the best in Rochester. He's he's plucking the best players out of all the different teams around Rochester to have the best team in Rochester. And they win. There's always a state champ or a city championship every year. 
and the Rochester Jeffersons win that. So his step one, best in Rochester, he's got it. So at this time, yes, World War I pops up, takes 14 of his starting players. Hmm. <laughs> After he had just assembled it, and they were doing well, 14 are drafted, and Leo himself was waiting to be called. He figured... Here we go. They're gonna. I'm gonna be drafted after I got this close, and I'm on my way. Uh, but he didn't get drafted. But uh, that was a big one. And then the influenza epidemic, which killed 50 million people worldwide. Uh, a lot of players were becoming sick and ill, and so he also have to deal with that. How did he avoid being drafted? It was just a a, a lucky thing. I mean, how did that happen? Yeah, as far as him not being drafted, yeah, it was a lucky thing. I mean, the war started in 1914. The U.S. didn't join the the war until 1917. So it was only a little over a year, not even half the war the U.S. wasn't even involved in. So Mm -hmm. you're talking a few years, the end of the the war, where there was a draft. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there were, you know, a huge amount of kids drafted mm-hmm. but he just wasn't he just didn't get that straw didn't get the call his number never came up no you know it so, was a real right. yeah yeah it was a real topsy-turvy time in america and yet through all of it again he didn't lose sight of what he really wanted professional football and so like we talked about the landscape of football at the time What about society, culture, the country as a whole? Would you please talk about that? Oh, and by the way, isn't it around this time that he got married? And and that didn't come without controversy either. Leo certainly, I guess he wasn't living a very, shall we say, calm and or reserved life. (laughs) No, not at all. So by 1914, he had he had been dating his a girl. He had the two of them had fallen in love since middle school, who were obsessed with each other, and they ended up marrying in 1914. And they had a beautiful marriage for I think it was 60 something years until they wow. passed away. Wow, that's, that's <laughs> so a long time. It was, their, it, was it was like again like a storybook thing you know he is his middle school sweetheart he ends up marrying her and they have a beautiful life together um so yeah by 1914 he gets married um the marriage again something out of a movie uh the two families did not get along with one another the two had set a date to get married at the church in church and school that they attended uh the two families refused to go. So uh, during a Tuesday morning at a Catholic church, which is rare that there would be a wedding on a Tuesday morning, uh, the Reverend liked Leo and his wife, Catherine, so much that he wed them in the morning. And the only people in attendance were Walter Hagen, one month away from winning the, his first U.S. Open. <laughs> <laughs> wow, wow, it's crazy. And, and the Rochester Jefferson football team. <laughs> <laughs> and on the marriage certificate, uh, it has, you know, the witnesses and it's signed and one of the players, Dutch, 
Dutch Melody, his signature is on the wedding certificate, and he was the halfback for the team. <laughs> Did the families ever come around? Uh, nope. <laughs> Actually, my mom has told me that he never, Leo never, ever talked about his parents. Hmm. I mean, very, very, it was a very bitter thing early on with, you know, his drinking and, and, uh, he definitely was closer to her family. Um, and, and and why did the families not like each other? I believe it's because of the drinking of Leo's father. And then there was a story that they had a party together before the wedding, you know, like a reception or recital dinner and his father was belligerent and saying things. And so the rift had started then and it just lasted through history. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. Wow. That's crazy. So, 60 right? years so, later, they were still married. So still married. Yeah. Sort of says something, doesn't it? Yeah. But nothing, nothing was normal in his life. From the wedding to. <laughs> no. Know, and in was, fact, around this time, I, I mean, this guy is still defying the odds. But right. all around this time, you know, I'm not sure it was exactly smooth sailing on the field. The Jeffersons, they were becoming a pretty good team. In fact, I think, as you had written, I think the years were 1915 and 1916. They had lost just two games over that two-year stretch, and they won a New York State championship. But yeah, the they actually— I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say the demands of the game were taking a toll on Leo professionally and personally. Talk about all that and, and what you were going to talk about with the New York State Championship. Uh, there's so much. I try, I try to get it all in my head here as we're talking because I'm thinking of like six different stories at once here. <laughs> so, so, yeah, we're in that 1915-1916. Uh, they win the state championship. Uh, they're the best in New York State, which was a big because he had to take on teams from Buffalo and Syracuse, who, which were the two other hotbeds of football in New York State. So he was able to beat them and become the state champions, which was his step two. Here he was. He was still only 23 years old. And he's already the best in Rochester and the best in the state doing this all out of his own pocket with no financial support and no, you know, setting up the fields by himself still, he's still the one-man one franchise. So he's taking on teams for the state championship. The, those teams were business teams. I mean, they were backed up by wealthy men in, in companies. And here you got this young kid doing it out of his own pocket. So that was pretty impressive. Mm -hmm. So... Mm -hmm. In later years, uh, Leo would find out that Jim Thorpe, who is in, who is leading the Canton Bulldogs and becoming the most dominant team in pro football, um, had been keeping tabs on Leo, which Leo would find out 20 years later um, that he was Leo was reading the newspapers about Jim Thorpe out west and how their league was beginning to to thrive. So Leo knew that this was his in, like he's now the best in the state. Now he's got to be involved with, you know, uh, any, the biggest league in the country. But that's you know, a blessing. It's, it's a blessing. 
right the, they're, they're yeah. not too far away <laughs> so at that time your only form of communication well you had the telephone and the newspaper so leo calls jim thorpe at the end of the 1916 season the, the roger jeffersons are the new york state champions leo calls jim thorpe and says hey we want to challenge you well, supposedly back then the etiquette was that you didn't do that <laughs> because the Canton Bulldogs were like the the greatest thing in, in the, on on earth. They were dismantling teams ninety eight to nothing, seventy seven to nothing. I mean, they were just destroying teams. So nobody would you know challenge them. So here you got this twenty three year old kid out out in New York saying we're going to come there and we're going to beat you. He's actually trash talking Jim Thorpe. (laughs) (laughs) So this makes the headlines of the newspaper here in Rochester, that the audacity of Leo Lyons to take on Jim Thorpe's Canton Bulldogs. So that itself made history. (laughs) The Jeffersons went out there to take them on. Mm -hmm. So over the, the, the months leading up to the game, the two would kind of like start a friendship talking on the phone a lot. And the two would always like to, they both had a a weird sense of humor, like a very dry sense of humor. Mm -hmm. And so Jim Thorpe, when the Rochester Jeffersons, this is a funny story. The Rochester Jeffersons got to Canton and they were on the playing field to practice. There was a stretcher put out Mm -hmm. on the, front of the bench of the mm-hmm. Jeffersons and supposedly uh, Jim Thorpe had his players put it there to, to give Leo the business and say uh, what his players were like, well, we usually carry one or two of these guys off, off the field dead or alive after a game. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you had your trash talking with Jim Thorpe and Leo Lyons. <laughs> but so, so, you know, the, the Jeffersons quickly learned just how good the Bulldogs were. But I think one of the one of the really interesting things, as you said, they both had this weird sense of humor, uh, you know, like placing a stretcher in front of the Jeffersons bench. <laughs> but fun was fun, and the game was the game. Thorpe was all for that. And so was Leo, obviously. But right. what they weren't for was racial insensitivity. Tell mm-hmm. us what happened between Greasy Neal and Henry McDonald and how Thorpe reacted. Yeah, that's that's uh, quite a scene um, during the game. Well, during football at that time, Jim Thorpe was a larger than life. He had already been in the Olympics in 1912 and had dominated. You know, he was, he was big on and off the field and, and physically he was a, a, a monster. No one would mess with him. So during the game, Henry McDonald of the Rochester Jeffersons was running a play and he was shoved very forcefully out of bounds by greasy Neal of the Ken Bulldogs. Uh, and he stood over him and kind of, I can't remember the exact line about black is black, or I can't think of what the line now, uh, right offhand, but made a racial comment standing over Henry McDonald. And Jim Thorpe, upon seeing this, 
uh, walked over and said, and it like, they said like the, you know, it was noisy on the field and all of a sudden it was crystal clear. It was quiet. And he said, we're here to play football. And, and that was it. And no, everybody walked away and nothing ever happened again on that day. But uh, yeah, quite a scene. It must've been, you know, to see Jim Thorpe take over like that. Mm-hmm. I wonder, I wonder how Thorpe would have reacted had he not struck, and you know, it's all it's all conjecture. But I wonder how he would have reacted had he and Leo not been, um, had they not struck up the friendship that they right. did. Because even after the game, Thorpe and Leo got together with another guy, a guy by the name of Ralph Hay. So, who was Ralph Hay? And the three of them really at that point set the foundation in place for professional football. So who was Ralph Hay? And can you talk at all about their impromptu meeting after that game? Okay. Well, the Jeffersons lost 41 or 49 to nothing to two different accounts, but that was the most respectable score that had happened in years. So, so Leo was happy he didn't lose 98 to nothing. But as they were coming off the field, um, Leo walked up alongside Jim Thorpe and Ralph Hay and said, look, I really want to start pro football. It's like I, I've dreamt about it. I, I got this plan. You know, I don't see any reason why we can't form a league. I've been watching you guys out here out west in this Ohio league. Um what's going on? Are you guys, you know, thinking about it or is anything being done? And Ralph Hay, who was the manager of the Canton Bulldogs, um, and Jim Tharp was the captain of the team, uh, both said that the teams out west in, in the Ohio League had been discussing starting a pro league and that uh, they were definitely plans, not definitively, but they were they were talking about it and that uh, Leo would definitely be contacted if they were going to start a league. So Leo was overjoyed that he was, you know, he had his in, you know. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that was a huge, a huge moment. And again, it wouldn't have happened if Leo wasn't so Bold. arrogant and, and, and brash and to take on Jim Thorpe, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, and, and that had earned Leo huge, um, you know, you know, uh, street cred or whatever you want to call it for, you know, among these legends, you know, mm-hmm. what he was doing. Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, that was a couple of years, be, you know, 1918, 19, I think it was 1917, you still got three years to go. Right. And then, <laughs> and then along comes 1919. Leo needed to rebuild his team. I'm skipping 1918. You know, 1918 was difficult. The war, the flu, it was Mm -hmm. bad. And Leo, well, how did Leo keep his team together in 1918? And how much did 1918 affect Leo's dream of establishing a professional football league? It was definitely the worst year to deal with, with calamities. Um, they actually only played two games that whole season because, uh, as I did research on the epidemic, 
uh, the Spanish flu. It had gotten so bad in America that they were closing churches, stores, like indefinitely until it ended. I mean, places, cities were actually just shutting down. Um, it was a, a wicked flu. You would keep health. It usually affected the healthy people versus what you would expect. And young kids were coming down with it in the morning, and then by evening they would be dead. I mean, it was just a total wow. quick moving flu. Like a, it was like a plague. And um, yeah, a lot of his players ended up becoming sick. And there was an incident where Leo played a game in Detroit against Detroit Heralds uh, in 1918. Went to Detroit. Again, this is when I, when, when I was doing this book or, or writing, I'm like, okay, so Leo went to Detroit. I didn't realize just saying that how much he had to do to get there how he had to pay for the train fare, pay for the hotel rooms. He had to get his players out of work. Mm. Right. <laughs> you know, Cause they, they held a, they held jobs. It wasn't as if this was a full-time right. gig playing football. This was fun. Or I guess for lack of a better term, a part-time job. Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, it was, it was tough. So, you know, he finally gets them out there. They play uh, on the way home on the train, one of the players becomes violently sick. So now they all panic. So they put the poor kid in the back of the train <laughs> and they quarantine him in his own car with like no heat all the way from Detroit during the winter. And the, the kid did survive. He ended up actually not having Spanish flu, but, but, you know, back at that time, I mean, it could have been deadly. Mm-hmm. You know, being in that close proximity in a train car, mm-hmm. um, yeah, just the, the the different things he had to deal with, and, and yeah, most a lot of teams didn't actually even feel the team in 1918 because it was it was so hard to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it was definitely the toughest challenge between the the kids that were drafted and several uh, the players were killed during World War Two or during World War One, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and that was a big thing that he had to deal with as well. Right. And then and then along comes 1919 and, you know, things are getting somewhat better with the exception of Leo needed to rebuild his team. He'd lost so many players to World War One. So he starts to sign players from local colleges. And at this time, the landscape of football was changing everywhere. Teams were having trouble staying afloat. Youngstown and Massillon. Two powerhouses, they folded. Others were in danger of folding. And I guess it was around this time that it had become a desperate time for Leo. It was almost a now or, I guess, a now or never situation for professional football. So what happened? How did it all come about? Well, by 1919... um, he had after the war and, and everything happened in 1918. Uh, he still was able to rebuild his team in 1919. Uh, he actually played for the state title against Buffalo in a two game series. They actually, the first one ended in a tie, and the second one they lost, I believe, seven to nothing to Buffalo. So, again, he was one of the top teams in the state, which he still felt comfortable. You know, best in Rochester, best in the state. Now he's ready to join a, a pro league. 
So, um, so yeah, 1919, he's ready to, to start a league. And, and at that time, the, the salaries of the players was, was starting to increase. Um, more and more of the college kids wanted money, more money. So that would bankrupt a lot of the, the teams like Maslin. They were, had too many players that were too, too afford, not too hard to afford mm-hmm. that would lead to their demise. Mm-hmm. But Lee was still in a good position. He was, he was ready. He knew though that finances were going to be a huge, a huge issue. And mm-hmm. again, he had gone to local area, area businesses saying, you know, professional football, it's on the cusp. I actually have a 1919 newspaper article of Leo saying, this is going to be like major league baseball. Hmm. We're going to be starting up a league. And then uh, the editor of the newspaper referred to Leo, the dreamer, <laughs> you see the quotes, you know, again, he was ridiculed for, for believing this. Mm-hmm. Well, 1920 comes about. And professional football was finally hatched. And it was hatched as the American Professional Football Association. It didn't become the NFL until I think it was two years later. Talk about the meeting that took place on September 17, 1920 in Canton, Ohio. Who was in attendance and how did the meeting go down? All right. Well, you had uh, in in August of 1920, there was a... A smaller meeting, which several of the Ohio League teams had gotten together and it sat down and were the first formal discussions of starting a league. But they had, they didn't really get anywhere. They, they had only had devised up just a few of the teams from Ohio in a league. And they really felt that they needed to bring in teams from other states to you know solidify the league. So then a second meeting was set for September 17th and Jim Thorpe gives Leo Lyons a telephone call and says, Leo, get your butt out here. We're going to be starting a new league. (laughs) So, you know, I'm sure he dropped everything no matter where he was uh, and headed out on a train. And he was there, the only team from New York at that meeting, uh, a New York team. And Leo mm-hmm. was representing the Rochester Jeffersons. And in the Almedini Ralph Hay Hupmobile Car Showroom, which which didn't have enough chairs. So you had guys sitting on the floor. You had guys sitting inside cars that were for sale in the showroom. <laughs> and uh, 14 men representing 10 teams were there, including George Hallis for the Chicago Bears. You had Jim Thorpe. And you had Leo Lyons there. Wow. And they all yeah. got – what? so so what did they do to form the league? Was it just – you know, how how did they make a schedule? I mean, what did they do there? They they signed some bylaws, and and did they create a schedule? Um, were all the teams only in Ohio with the exception of Rochester? Talk a little more about, about – the formation of the league. Yeah. When, when they had first started there, you know, it before that meeting on September 17, 1920, it was called the APFC for conference instead of association. And, you know, there, the things that they came up with were still far from 
really being a good system. They change it to association to make it sound more professional. So they call it the American Professional Football Association. But there were no set schedules. Um, teams could play against other NFL te- or NF- or pro teams in that league, or they could play local teams. They could play high school teams if they wanted to. So it was a, it, they, they made the rules, but they, they were very loose on their – again, it was a trial by error. You know, so so never so so it was a professional league. Was it formed in the way Leo had hoped it would be formed, or just the fact that he could call his team a professional team that was satisfactory enough? There was he he was kind of bummed that he because when he met there, those guys that were there at the showroom, they all knew each other because they had all been playing in the Ohio league together against each other. So he was kind of the outsider, you know, coming in. So, um, yeah, he wasn't happy. He, he, he had mentioned in his notes that, that he was hoping that there would be more structure. He didn't detail what kind of structure, but I think at that time he felt that he was hoping that there'd be a little more structure Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to the league, but it was a start. I mean, it was something that hadn't been done before with that many teams. Um, so you had teams from Illinois. Um, uh, trying to think of some of the other ones, but there were, you had a few other states out west. So mm-hmm. yeah, so it's it started out a little rough for sure. You know, I got to ask this question: through all of this, how did Leo support his team? In fact, throughout all of this. How did Leo support himself and his family? <laughs> well, he worked a full-time job at a tele- Rochester telephone company, um, installing telephone poles, which were newly invented. And he also worked at an electric bulb manufacturing company because electricity was new. So and he was making light bulbs. So he was working two jobs, uh, and, you know, being married and he was, st- oh, see, I forget all these stories. <laughs> uh, after he was done at school, he wasn't happy with just having football. So he created the Rochester Jefferson baseball team and Rochester Jefferson basketball team. <laughs> and he would have his players play those during the spring and summer to keep it, ah. to keep fit. <laughs> ah. Interesting. So wow. He ended up wow. Developing those. So, yeah. They had money, to really commit. They, the, all those players really had to commit. Oh, yeah. And what was interesting is that these players, they stayed with them all the way through all, you know, all those years. They almost all were the same players, which is pretty impressive. They, you know, 10, 15, 20 kids, he had them all playing for him. Mm-hmm. You know, it's pretty impressive. Right. But, all, the, uh, all, all these kids, all these people stick with him. He's finally got his professional football league. His Rochester Jeffersons are more than a decent team. But as we started today's podcast, we talked about the fact that people in Rochester don't even realize they once had an NFL team. For that matter, they once had an NBA team as well. But <laughs> it's true. You know? they, 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 they didn't realize they had, or they didn't know they had 
an actual NFL team. Yeah, his six, home, six seasons. <laughs> right. His hometown fans, they didn't offer a whole lot of support. Why? No, it was with Bob Carroll, the famous, uh, the late historian of the football, of the NFL, said it was the ultimate uh, dilemma he came up, he would have to deal with, was that once he joined the pro league, he knew he could no longer have those kids that he's had for so many years because they were from Rochester. He knew that they were good in that setting, but not the best in the country. So now he knew he was going to have to start replacing his local kids with college kids. And right away in 1920, Leo, of course, was gung-ho. He knew what he had to do. So he would be going to Syracuse University. He'd be picking up players like Joe Alexander. Who, I mean, he would be picking up college All-Americans from around the country, even Benny Boynton, who was a quarterback from Texas. Leo actually took a train all the way to Texas and picked up the kid and brought him back to Rochester on the train. Oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, and that was impressive for Rochester. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. he had to, it was a battle and you didn't have a draft back then. It didn't come until 1936. So you, you as a manager and owner had to go out and actually go get these kids as they as they graduated from high school or mm. from college. So as Leo is bringing in these college talent, he now is becoming hated in his city because they want to see the local kids. Hmm, this must have been so devastating, so disappointing to him. It was huge because once uh, after the actually 1921, the, the following season, he had 12 All-Americans on his team. Now, he had more All-Americans on his team than the Chicago Bears. I mean, again, this is a kid who's paying his team out of his own pockets against teams that are backed up by big corporations and he's doing it. However, nobody is coming to the football games. Mm-hmm. Everybody's boycotting. He, they said the high school crowd was four times as big as the Rochester Jefferson's crowds, man. So now he's even got a bigger problem because he can't afford to keep the players because he's not making any money at the game. And by 1925, he just couldn't do it anymore. I mean, it signaled the end of the Rochester Jeffersons. And I guess no matter what Leo tried, it didn't work. I mean, heck, he even tried to sign Red Grange, but the Bears beat him to the punch. So 1925 was it. He no longer had a professional football team. And the guy who imagined, who dreamed of, who helped to create professional football, who helped to create the National Football League, he was out of the game. He was was out out of the the game. game. But, you know, as much as he was out of the game, he still had friends. Art Rooney was his friend. George Hallis remained friends with him. And he was invited to the league meetings, as you have written, every Mm -hmm. year— until, for whatever reason, Pete Rosell stopped paying for Leo to attend the league meetings. In the 60s. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> year, 40 years later, P. 
Pete Rosell said, enough of this guy. He's got nothing to do with football anymore. <laughs> how bitter, how bitter were those 40 years for Leo and, and how awful was, I, I can't even imagine how awful he felt when Pete Rosell said no more. Well, it was definitely tough. And, and, and that's a whole other story with him and Pete Rosell, but, um, yeah, at, at the end of this, you know, their existence in 1925, um, again, Leo would do something that would end up, you know, before he challenged Jim Thorpe like he did when he was younger. And that later on in history, Leo in his life, Jim Thorpe would would regard Leo Lyons very highly. He would, you know, become friends. And the same thing happened in 1925 is the, the greatest player, um, Red Grange, was signing with the Bears. While Leo Lyons was in that hotel with a $5,000 check in hand, and he was there ready to sign Red Grange, who turned it down for 100000 with the Bears for yeah. you know, a whole season. But again, George Hallis noticed, here's this 20-something-year-old kid shows up in this hotel room with 5000 bucks in his hand, ready to sign Grange. And nobody else was like that. I mean... That's where, and then he became lifelong friends with George Hallis. It was these things like this that those guys recognized there was something different about this kid. He wasn't your average kid. And George Hallis, when he was inducted in 1963 into the Hall of Fame, mentions Leo Lyons by name in his induction speech, which the Hall of Fame, when I went there 10 years ago, said that's the biggest thing that I could ever think of is when George Hallis mentions your his name, in his induction speech, he's somebody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's like, he mentions Leo Lyons being one of the unsung men of professional football. That's that's the biggest thing you could get from somebody. You know what I can't understand is he loses, you know, the Jeffersons fold up and he's a part of the league or is, you know, remains – you know, somehow he remains with the league, but not in any sort of official capacity. Why Why did he never become, I don't know if the, the term is correct, an officer of the league? Or did he? And I just, and I, and I'm just not recognizing it. Well, he did become the honorary historian of the National Football League, which was voted on unanimously by all the team owners. But that was in the later years, probably the 50s and 60s. Um, but Leo was offered a job from Art Rooney to join the Steelers, and George Hales did offer Leo a job with the Chicago Bears. Mm-hmm. But it was a job that was well under those two, and Leo was a very prideful man. And I had asked my mom, I'm like, why didn't he take that job? You know, you know, they would have given, he's like, he didn't, he felt equal to them. You know, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. he didn't want to work for them. I, you know, that's one of those things, you know, if it was me, I would (laughs) have, but he, Leo was his own guy. And, and, uh, no, he was still friends, but he, he cordially said, you know, no, thank you. Um, Leo actually had, see, there's so many stories that could go on here. Leo ended up starting a bowling league. He was a president of a country club here in Rochester. He started his own professional paint company. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, hmm. We could go on and on. So there were other reasons why, but he still continued to collect football memorabilia. 
because back in the early days, nobody thought that pro football would last. So that's when him and Pete Rozelle became good friends over the years. And during the like 1960, Leo said, you know, there's Cooperstown. The NFL needs a Hall of Fame. Right. And he played so, a really integral role in, in right. forming the Hall of Fame. So yes, not only did he help form the National Football League, he helped f- create the Professional Football Hall of Fame in Canton. Yep. The Hall of Fame actually let me copy memos of the actual memos between Pete Rozelle and Leo Lyons on NFL stationery. And there it was, you know, Leo was invited for the coin toss at the Hall of Fame game, the, the inaugural Hall of Fame game. He was there at the ribbon cutting ceremony. He was there at a cake cutting ceremony on stage. I mean, he was right there among everybody, the owners, the everybody. <laughs> and again, no mention of Leo Lyons in the Hall of Fame. But why, why, why did Roselle stop paying for Leo to attend the league meetings? What was the big deal? I think it was Leo was getting older at that time. And I had seen some of the memo. I mean, literally, the the NFL was giving him airfare, food. I mean, there was like checks for like five thousand dollars for the thing. So I don't know. I eventually um, those two had a rift somewhere later on because Leo believed that the Hall of Fame should have more of the early history, and mm-hmm. P. Rozelle pretty much he felt like. The NFL started with Pete Rozelle because of the NFL, the yeah. television contracts, yeah. the the merger. So it was kind of like Leo was the old guard, Pete Rozelle was the new guard. But the two actually, Pete Rozelle came to Rochester and visited Leo when he was in the hospital. So mm-hmm. there was a friendship there as well. But um, yeah, as far as the, attending the meetings, they find I don't know if they had a rift or somewhere along the line where he. He wasn't invited anymore, but, uh, but yeah, so yeah, Leo was behind the opening of the hall of fame as well. Hmm. One of them, one of the men. Mm-hmm. Well, I, you know, when we started this podcast, you talked about how your mom had said that, uh, uh, Leo was pretty much bitter, uh, throughout his later years and certainly can understand why. Um, Why do you think he's not remembered better than he is? That's a good question. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. You know, Um, yeah, I mean, we, you and I, obviously, and I'm I'm new to this, to, to the Leo Lyons story, so I think I know what his legacy is, but how do you think he should be remembered, and has he been given the respect and admiration he deserves? He's beginning to get the admiration. Um, I have here in Rochester now, they just did a front page on the Sunday paper. They did five stories in the newspaper. Uh, they had the front, the front page was Leo. The sports section was all Leo. Uh, the Strong Museum of Play, which gets a half million visitors a year, they currently have a display with the NFL memorabilia of Leo's that I have, along with the Buffalo Bills uh, general manager worked with me, and we have a, a split this exhibit. It's like a 100 years of the NFL, so it's got a uniform. I have a actual helmet 
shoes, pants, football uh, from the team. Mm-hmm. And then they've got the this year's Buffalo Bills, so a comparison. And um, there's been a lot of talk um, on the internet with my website. Um, people saying, this is amazing. I never knew, you know, that the NFL had a team here. And I'm just hoping that just through the things that I do, that through time, people will see more. We'll see, you know, oh, there's Leo Lyons, his name. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know? Sure. So yeah, it's 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 starting to happen. So mm-hmm. well, I visited your website, rochesterjeffersons.org. That's rochesterjeffersons.org. And your book, A Journey from the Sandlots to the National Football League, can people get a hold of it? Um, oh, it's still still in process, still working on it. So. <laughs> but I do I do have a publisher and then it's still in the works well you let us know when it's coming out and we'll do everything we can to help publicize it john there's obviously so much more that we can talk about as far as leo is concerned um, but this has been great and i'm really looking forward to meeting you come june uh in canton at the uh, PFRA conference. I want to thank you so much for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. Is there anything else you'd like to say about the great Leo Lyons? (laughs) No, just uh, very happy that you had me on your show, and and I'm sure a lot of people are going to hear this. And, again, you never know what leads to what, you know, who listens to what. And and I'm just hoping, you know, people just, it just catches on and, and shows like this will help for sure. Definitely. Again, John, thank you so much for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. Thank you very much. The Pro Football Hall of Fame opened in 1963. There were 17 men inducted, 11 of whom were players, including Jim Thorpe. One founder, owner, coach, and that was George Hallis, and five owner executives, Curly Lambeau, Burt Bell, Joe Carr, Tim Mara, and George Marshall. The Hall of Fame was the brainchild of Leo Lyons. The league itself came about in large part because of the dream that Leo Lyons pursued. So, how is it? that Leo Lyons is not a member of the Hall of Fame? How is it that, according to today's guest, John Steffenhagen, Leo's name can't even be found in the Hall of Fame? Of all the injustices in professional football, this has got to be one of the biggest. I'd like to thank John for reaching out to me and letting me know about Leo Lyons, and I am really looking forward to the release of his book, A Journey from the Sandlots to the National Football League. If you have an idea for a forgotten hero you'd like to learn more about, please visit sportsfh.com. Click on the contact button and send me a note. I have heard from so many people about possible topics, And this one I just couldn't ignore. And I look forward to reading about your suggestion. Next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes, Hockey. The NHL. Three of the game's forgotten netminders, all of whom played for an original six team, the New York Rangers. 
Chuck Rayner, Dave Kerr, and Lorne Gump Worsley. That's next time for now. As always, thanks to everyone for listening, and I'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.